Welcome to the Breathe Easy Pediatrics Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Gaedo, a pediatric pulmonologist and severe asthma clinic physician at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Matt Wong. Today, we are going to bring you a conversation with Dr. Allie Larkin, Dr. Carol Mansfield, and Dr. Robin Cohen on implementation of single maintenance and reliever therapy, referred to as SMART or MART. We first talk about when and how each of these providers adopted the new 2020 NAEPP guidelines recommending SMART, then discuss how they've observed SMART to impact their patients and challenges they've experienced implementing the new guidelines. Finally, they provide advice for providers seeking to implement SMART into their practice. I'm including some references on implementation of SMART therapy in the notes for this podcast. I enjoyed their conversation and picked up some great insights from them. And I hope you do, too. Great. I'm Allie Larkin. I am one of the allergy and immunology physicians here at Children's, and I um, run our difficult-to-treat asthma clinic, and I'm our clinical director for our pediatric asthma center. I'm Carol Mansfield. I'm a pediatrician, board certified in pediatrics and adolescent medicine. I've been working in Winthrop, Maine for 27 years now. I trained in Boston, came up here with my husband. And um, so I'm in primary care. I'm in the trenches um, seeing kids with asthma and excited to be a part of this um, uh, podcast and hopefully learn a little bit more about SMART and maybe um, try to help you understand our challenges in primary care um, because we have many. (laughs) So I'm Robin Cohen. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist. I work with a primarily like low income Medicaid urban population. And so even though our clinic is not named officially named like the severe asthma program, like 80% of my practice is, in the trenches, mm-hmm. asthma. Um, and thankfully, our state Medicaid program embraced SMART almost instantaneously. And so it's been like a godsend for the population that I take care of. But the few patients I have with employer-based health insurance, it's a lot harder for them. Thank you guys for those those great introductions. The guidelines were updated in 2020 to include SMART or MART. Um, when did you all start officially recommending SMART slash MART um, into your official practice? Um, Allie, would you like to start since you started us off with our intro? <laughs> sure. So this has um, been an evolution for us where we are in how we've incorporated this. And I, I think I would say we are still a work in progress here. We had a pretty big QI initiative uh, over the past year, year and a half, where we worked really closely together with our primary care colleagues to roll out educational materials and kind of um, educational sessions where we could all talk about this. And concurrently, this was looped into our fellow education and our resident education Um, curriculum. So we have over the past, I would say, year and a half to two years, tried to do this on a system-wide level where we're educating and doing at the same time. So I would say the past two years have been really rich in trying to incorporate that, um, the information in our institution. Great. And then Carol, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, So um, it always feels like it takes a while for things to trickle down to Maine, including influenza for the year. And um, um, and so in about in late November, I can tell you, November 2022, my colleague and I said, what is this smart? And thank you for telling me that it's now Mart. what is this SMART? And so we decided to reach out to our pulmonary specialist, pediatric pulmonary specialist at Maine Med in Portland, Annie Coates, Colby Wyatt, 
And um, Diana Baker and I sat for an hour and with Colby and tried to understand what this SMART therapy was, um, now called MART. Um, so that was in November 2022. I can look back at our emails and see when we set up the meeting and so forth. And I would say it wasn't until 2023, last spring, that we started to, you know, it's it's difficult it's difficult to understand this, I think. And well, I'll I'll go into it. And I, and I just want to tell you that, um, from my perspective, all labas are not created equally, right? So I didn't quite understand that salmeterol was not formoterol. Formoterol is the short and long acting. Um, and so I don't know that that was clear to me after our first discussion with Colby. Um, it took me a while to understand it. It's usually in the fine print that formoterol is the one that's approved, not salmeterol or verlanterol. Um, and um, so we started to kind of embrace this after probably last winter, like, you know, when you start to see these kids repeatedly for wheezing. And my colleague, Dr. Baker, and I were like, why don't we use Symbacort? You know, why, why don't we use Combine for some of these kids? So we've been trying. Um, now, what happens is most kids that end up that we consider for um, SMART or MART therapy, we are oftentimes going to get allergy involved because we're concerned about the triggers. And our allergist um, and the couple of nurse practitioners are key in like kind of setting the precedent here. And we are just starting to see, you know, more of that. Like I would say two of the nurse practitioners are not utilizing it, but the allergist is. Um, and, and then there's the stepwise approach, right? If you start to get better, you step back down from the long acting. And um, so this is a lot for our parents to kind of understand. And it's a lot for us to try to sort out. And, and um, so, and, you know, I could go on a little bit longer, but we have probably half on main care and we have half that have insurance. Some insurance is better than others. And um, when we get further down the road, I can tell you a little bit about the price differences, um, you know, and what it might cost to be on a um, combined long acting ICS versus a ICS and a short acting. And, you know, if you have three inhalers at home, what that costs. So um, um, anyway, it's it's been, we're working on it, um, but it would be best if it was simplified. Um, you know, if I read the GINA um, guidelines now for 12 and above, um, boy, that would be really nice for all of our kids. Um, but anyway, um, I, I hope that's helpful. No, definitely. And then Robin. Uh... Yeah, so um, so the, the new guidelines came out in the middle of this big primary care QI, like multifaceted initiative that we've been working on at my institution because over 80% of our patients are on Medicaid and 70% of them are on the same Medicaid plan in an accountable care organization. So there's this big push to lower costs and achieve high quality and achieve the asthma medication ratio quality benchmark, which is the ratio of controllers to total asthma prescriptions filled. And so that was like the context wow. for when the guidelines were released. And then one of our local community health centers, literally like five minutes after the guidelines were published, asked me to give a talk about SMART, which forced me to really do a deep dive into exactly what the guideline recommendations were and what the evidence base was that underlies those guideline recommendations. And so um, I would highly recommend that if you're interested, the Jackie paper that talks about the guidelines that outlines every study that went into the guideline recommendation was very helpful. Um, and so I literally like gave, probably gave my first smart talk in January of 2021 um, and then wow. gave it grand rounds to my department in February. Um, so I initially started my sort of like 
this who would I do smart therapy with slide in my talk was patients for whom their current regimen isn't working, patients with persistent asthma for whom their current plan isn't working, and patients who, who for whatever reason, a daily controller and a, and a PRN rescue med, it was just not clicking for them. Um, and that meant teenagers who love to carry their pro-air inhaler in their pocket all day long, but you couldn't get them to take a daily controller every day, or kids with persistent asthma who you, who just, you could not get under control. And so my first approach was a targeted approach with this mentality of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, um, and I would say that was how I did it for the first year. And I had such positive results and such gratitude from families for simplifying the plan. Um, and then this magical thing happened where a 90-day supply of asthma controllers became preferred. And so not only could I get two inhalers a month, but I could get six inhalers at once every 90 days. And for a population where they might be spending some of their time in one household and some of their time in another household, an inhaler needs to get to school and one in the backpack, like six inhalers of the same inhaler every 90 days seemed like a magical thing. And then I just started offering it to everybody. You know, you've been well controlled on Flovent 110 and Albuterol PRN for quite some time, but we have this other option. Is this something that's interesting to you? And a lot of people took me up on it. Even when I said, you know, that means that the nebulizer has to go in the closet now. Um, and so there were a few families that like could not let go of the middle of the night nebulizer treatment. But for plenty of people, because I've been really encouraging HFA over nebulizer anyway, that that wasn't that a rate limiting factor. And so now it's, it's pretty much my first line, because if you read the guidelines in step one to six, like starting at step, step three is preferred. It is the preferred thing. And so we, and I even, and we've been really aggressive or proactive, I should say, about it in the primary care practice. So we have um, a lot of our, even our seasoned veterans are saying, I'm just skipping Flovent completely and going straight to smart therapy, which is going to help us a lot as um, GSK takes Loban off the market in December. So, yeah, that's sort of the story. Thanks. That's really helpful. Um, and I can kind of guess what your response is going to be, Dr. Cohen, for my next question. Um, but roughly what portion of eligible asthma patients do you put on SMART or MART therapy? Um, and how do you decide who's a good fit and who's not a good fit at this point? Yeah, so... Um, in my practice, and I don't think the adoption is universal across every provider in our primary care practice. I think there were early adopters and, you know, embracers and other people who are less comfortable with change. Um, but I put anyone who I am convinced has persistent asthma. If it's sort of like over the age of five, it's, if it's sort of like I'm in between, then I'm not sure. Um, especially in the 5 to 11 age group, I think it's definitely my go-to for 12 and up. And a lot of times in 12 and up, I'll sort of default to like the GINA approach. If I'm not sure if they're truly persistent or they may be under-reporting symptoms, I'll just put them on um, an ICS-4 Motorol PRN, thinking that if there are going to be times in the year where their symptoms are more persistent, then they're going to be getting that medication as a controller anyway. Um, so as my answer is as many as possible. Great. That's helpful. <laughs> um, and then Dr. Larkin, uh, what proportion of eligible patients do you put on SMART and how do you decide who to put on and who not to? I think I have a very similar approach. Um, I think it's really important that we use the guidelines, look at the guidelines, and think about the preferred therapy at step three for age five and up, um, and dive in and do it. So I, I do the same thing. If I'm at step three or above, I will offer it. Sometimes the conversations are uh, lengthy to talk about how to do it and what we're doing and 
I also use sort of the, the, the descriptive words of saying, put X inhaler in the closet, put X inhaler in the drawer. I think as we change the practice, it's really important to create visuals and, and really good teaching and understanding techniques so folks know kind of what we're asking them to do. In some ways, it's really nice. You can say um, you've got one inhaler now, put everything else away. <laughs> I, I do that same thing. Um, uh, when we're teaching and when we're learning this at, at a institutional level, um, we talk about preferred and alternative therapy. And as a whole, I think we're all really trying to accept and use the preferred therapy approach. So I, I think it's very, very similar to Dr. Cohen. Great. And then Dr. Mansfield, what about you? Similar. I, we may not, I mean, I can imagine um, having worked in Roxbury, um, we may not see as much asthma here. And I would love to skip step two and not do the two separate inhalers and always use the combined inhaler. And, you know, when do I get worried? A kid shows up really wheezing badly. Like, um, like how long has this child been wheezing? You know, then I might treat with steroids and stick them on um, uh, the, the smart therapy just because I'm like, what has gone on? And until I can get them into an allergist or, you know, understand what were the triggers. Um, um, or, you know, kids who you just know that the parents can't do that, you know, they can't do it. They can't, they might be able to do the two puffs of the inhaled corticosteroid twice a day for a couple of weeks, but then, you know, they're going to trail off and forget to do it. So, um, uh, so kind of compliance is an issue. Um, kids who show up really sick, like you don't know how long they've been sick. Um, there's a lot of education that needs to be around, like, what is asthma? That is asthma. You're wheezing. Um, um, and I, and I, I guess that's, you know, obviously somebody who's recurrent, who's comes back time and time again, um, same things that you would do, you know? I think that that is so poignant to like, you know, the distinction on my end as a clinician from, step two to step three and step three to step four is not always so clear when we're seeing somebody in clinic, meeting them for the first time or meeting them after a couple of times. The When I've been teaching these guidelines and doing the talks, I don't know if you guys have had this experience too, like it's kind of going back to like, how do I classify your asthma? Where do you fit in classification? And sometimes it's just not exactly clear. And we kind of have to make this decision. Like, I think you're at step three. I I, I do. And I'm going to put you there and we're going to treat there. And like we have talked about earlier, I may step you down in a couple of months if you're doing well. But I think it's just not always exactly clear to us what step someone is in. It, it is very dynamic. It's so dynamic. I just had the allergist drop somebody from step three down to step two, which was, okay, one inhaler back down to two inhalers. And, you know, next week that kid could have a, get a bad cold, you know, and we don't always, we don't hear about that. I'm sure you don't as specialists, but the primary care doctor oftentimes has no clue that that kid is home struggling again. Um, so it's so dynamic. I think the one, and this is especially true in 12 and up, but the one nice thing about SMART is that when you, when I step down, sometimes my approach to stepping down is we'll go to once a day, one dose a day, keeping the same single inhaler that they are using, but mm -hmm. just going from twice a day to once a day and then keeping that same inhaler as the PRN. Because I, I have this photo that I show all the time of like, you know, if you seem confused. Why don't you bring all your inhalers into the next visit so we can go over what you have in the home? And there's just the drawer, right, at home that these families have, the drawer of all the inhalers. 
the like inhaler graveyard of the different inhalers that they've been on from their PCP. And if they get admitted, then the inpatient unit puts them on something. And if they see the specialist, they step them up or they step them down and nobody wants to throw anything away. And so there's like 15 different inhalers in this drawer with expiration dates from like 2007. And, and I just, I want to just keep things as streamlined as possible, as simple, mm -hmm. as simple as possible. Um, so I have a question, Robin. Are there any spacers in that drawer? Um, because often, yeah, that's a problem here. Yeah. Like private insurance won't pay for a spacer. Oh. That, that's. I mean, you know, the, the kid that's got the Provental in the pocket, is the spacer in the other pocket? Yeah, no. The kid with the, yeah. with the Provental in the pocket, it does not have a spacer in the other pocket. Yeah. Um, okay. And we have we have a closet full of spacers. I probably shouldn't, like, advertise this because somebody <laughs> in some, like, purchasing office somewhere is going to come to my clinic and take our closet full of spacers away. Um, Me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And then what spacer are they willing to carry around with them? So, you know, we'll have the spacer with the face mask at home and the teenagers, if I can get them to carry around a spacer with a mouthpiece in the backpack, I'll, you know, I consider it a victory. <laughs> yes, totally. I think I'm going to kind of combine questions based on uh, Dr. Cohen, your response too, but how do you, and you mentioned this briefly um, in an earlier response, how do you guys introduce the concept of SMART with families and with patients that you guys have seen, like felt would benefit from beginning that therapy and, and what hurdles have you encountered? Uh, Dr. Cohen, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I bring in lots of pictures, um, and so I often will start with the the explanation of what asthma is. We have a really nice cartoon that shows a normal airway and an asthma airway with the you know inflamed, swollen airway wall and the tight and smooth muscle. Um, and so I usually start with that, and then it, and then explain. Historically, what, you know, for somebody who has been on an inhaled steroid and an albuterol inhaler, I'll explain that your daily inhaler, you know, deals with this problem and your albuterol deals with that problem. But what I'd like to do is put you on an inhaler that treats both this and that at the same time. And then it's, you only have one inhaler to keep track of instead of having to keep track of two inhalers. Um, and, you know, I, I tell people that they've been using this approach in Europe for years and years, and it took us a while on the side of the pond to get with the program. So this is something that there's been a lot of experience with. Um, and the the biggest hurdle, I because of the fact that I don't, for the most part, have to deal with the insurance challenges, so I'm going to put those in the parking lot for now, um, the biggest hurdle is people who really do love their albuterol nebulizer. Um, mm -hmm. And and if I get the sense that somebody is really uncomfortable with limiting their rescue to the ICS hormoterol, then SMART may not be for them because I'm not in their house at two o'clock in the morning with them. Um, and so if I'm really sensing a, a lot of resistance, I, I usually don't push. Unless it's like, unless their situation is really not working and we're looking at repeated hospitalizations and ICU admissions. And then I'll say, can we just try this for, you know, two months and see how it goes? And if this isn't working, we'll go back to the other thing. But can we, can we start with this? Um, so I would say the nebulizer is the biggest, is the biggest issue that I encounter. Dr. Larkin, do you want to follow up? Um, well, let me be ignorant. Is it is it contra is a nebulizer contraindicated when you're using smart therapy? Additional. Um, so what I say is that there's already a long acting form of albuterol in the inhaler that they're getting, and so if they're using this combination inhaler as their rescue medication and it's not working, you know, after two days of using it around the clock, two to three days if it's not working then it's not working and piling on more albuterol in this situation isn't going to help and that 
they really need to reach out to their primary care doctor or to us um, because acutely this plan is not working. Right. Um, so, so it really, I mean, my understanding of the guidelines is that the ICS for motorol inhaler, that's, that's your, what you're using for your controller and for your rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I do worry that, that people would pile on the albuterol. I already, I already worry that people use their albuterol more frequently than I want them to. And for too many days, you know, the kids in the ICU have been using their albuterol Q2 for five days. Um, and so the message is really, if, if the smart plan is not working, then it's not working and you need to be seen. Dr. Larkin, um, what are your thoughts? We, I mean, we say the same thing there and um, suggest that if this plan isn't working, you got to get seen. You got to come in. You don't swap for albuterol at home. Um, this is a this is a visit. I that's exactly what we do as well. Um, barriers to use. I think that was one of the things we were talking about or issues that have come up. Um, you know, I think time for counseling is one of them. When we're changing a therapy, um, this one requires new teaching, right, of a way that folks aren't used to doing something. We've told them to do this one way a long time. We've really highlighted your two inhalers. We've labeled them. We've shown you them. We've (laughs) told you what color each one is, and, and we're really switching things around. I think, again, like Dr. Cohen, I have a similar experience of noted engagement in the discussion with some excitement thought about decreased steroid use in general, like oral steroids, better asthma control, less ER visits. I mean, there's a lot of really wonderful things that this therapy could lead to. And if I sense that we're in a productive conversation and we're all ready to make a change, we do it and we go for it. But I also have a similar experience, I, I think, too, where sometimes it's just a lot of info. And if kids aren't doing great, it's hard to shift. Um, uh, sometimes that's an opportunity to shift. So I think it works in lots of different ways during the conversations of talking about it. But I think um, time talking about it is one of the things that I could use more of. <laughs> Um, teaching tools. I mean, I think we we all, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could all share how we do this and what we use? There's action plans. I know we may talk about action plans later, but we all have to change our asthma action plans, right? Um, um, what visualizations are we using in clinic to talk about this? So I um, I think when I when I feel like we're all engaged in the room, we do it. When I feel like it's worrying people and the change is maybe not going to be accepted easily, we don't do it at that visit, and maybe we talk about it again next time. If I could jump in there, the other barriers that we encountered, I would say, for the first year and a half, were even if we were all in agreement in the room, um, the commercial pharmacies often wouldn't fill the prescriptions. Um, the school nurses would send the inhalers home the because they weren't familiar with them um my families who are following their smart plan to the letter would get negative feedback from the emergency department providers how come you didn't start the albuterol mm-hmm. um and so mm-hmm. there even if we were all like you know simpatico with this idea there were a lot of external forces fighting against us um that that made it challenging. And so we had to change our doctor's order form so that there was room to write a two-line sentence that we're using this inhaler on purpose, you know, in in concordance with the new guidelines that recommend using Simbicord as both a controller and a rescue medicine. Um, You know, making sure families had had screenshots of the asthma action plan on their phones so they wouldn't get yelled at in the emergency department if they unfortunately had to go. Like, or, um, you know, writing in as many places as possible that CVS, yes, this is two inhalers a month or dispense six inhalers, two per month, 90 day supply, dispense, this is smart therapy. There okay. were definitely a lot of barriers in execution outside the exam room. And then Dr. Mansfield, um, your experiences. 
Well, you know, I'm just feeling like it is, we are so behind here and maybe, maybe I just don't see smart therapy being used by my allergist, um, by, by the allergist, but not the, um, mid-level providers. And, and, um, and I, I get it about the albuterol nebulizer. It is, I mean, that for families is, um, something very difficult to give up. But I honestly, I'm worried about writing a prescription for like a Symbicort and getting a reaction. I, I've done this so infrequently, um, mostly because I think most of my asthmatics are pretty stable, but um, using up to eight puffs a day or up to 12 puffs a day, I'm afraid they're going to run out because they won't fill it accordingly. I'm going to have back you know, from the insurance company, you know, saying we won't fill it. So the patient runs out. So I'm a little bit, I haven't really lived this to know where I will go if I do need a patient to use it up to 12 times a day. Um, but, you know, for my family's one inhaler, oh, please, you know, it would just be so, because like, like you understand, Robin, you all, all, all understand how often your parents split, how many, not, not just two, you know, you've got an inhaler at dad's house, an inhaler at mom's house, one at school. Um, so one inhaler with a spacer would be the preferred for all of my kids. Yeah, so I, 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 I love this idea. I looked, um, I didn't look in Maine, but I did look to see what was covered in Vermont, New Hampshire, New Jersey. Um, it's interesting, like Massachusetts will pay for six inhalers in 90 days. I think Vermont pays for four or five. Um, I think the same. So there is some variability um, in what's covered. At least I'm talking about state Medicaid plans. But it would be interesting to see what Maine covers. Because then, then at least you have a leg to stand on um, if they're refusing to, if the pharmacy isn't dispensing what the patient needs. Um, and, you know, I've definitely had this problem with a severe asthmatic who's now 20 in college, where his insurance wouldn't pay for Dulera or Symbicort, but would pay for Advair, right? And I mean, I hospitalized this kid five times a year when he was younger, living with the, the you know, they were homeless, living with grandma and all the cats, right? So um, he's been able to avoid those triggers now, but he is one of my worst. That's kind of where I am sometimes. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And um, I think you bring up a great point about insurance issues, being concerned that you won't be able to get an adequate number of inhalers to cover for a month since you are not just using the standard, you know, four puffs a day, you're using additional. Um, I've heard of some providers who recommend using albuterol for school and then their smart therapy for home. Um, do any of you use that approach where you do have the albuterol at school and smart at home, or do you universally use smart both at school and at home? Dr. Cohen, do you want to go first? I use smart at home and at school. Um, we, so we have a, an, like an, a, hospital-based ambulatory pharmacy. And so I do have some at-the-level pharmacy support where they will tell me this employer-based plan won't pay for two inhalers in 30 days, but they'll pay for one every 15 days. Or this, this insurance prefers a 30-day supply, that insurance pays a 90-day supply. So I lean very heavily on that at-the-elbow support so that the first time I write the prescription, I get it right as much as possible. Um, and I and I am so grateful because I could not do this job without them. Before we had the 90-day supply, you would do all this teaching in the room, and then and then I'd have to explain, you can't actually send one of these to school until you pick up your first round of refills because you need the extra one at home in case you need the rescue. But when you pick up your mm -hmm. next round of refills and you get inhalers number three and four, then you could probably send inhaler number four to school. Um, so when it became 90 days supply, it became a lot easier. And that felt so clunky 
to me at the beginning, but I am, I know I'm spoiled in the sense that I can get six at once and send one to school. Awesome. Yes. And then Dr. Mansfield, what about you? Um, well, I just had my colleague whose son has asthma go to the pharmacy because we decided instead of writing for brand name Symbacort, we would write for generic budesonide um, for Motorol. And um, so her insurance, she only she could only get three inhalers in uh, 90 days. And her insurance, with her insurance, they were $24. The Symbacort would have been um, $225, but it retailed for $665, the nine-month supply. So, and I hate to say it, but I have plenty of families in my practice who have the bare bones insurance or don't have any. So you can imagine. And then if 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 they step down to step two and they have to have a flow vent and an albuterol, I mean, I don't, that must be $1,000 for... 90 days so yeah that's tough it's crazy how insurances can really drive our practice patterns and dr larkin what about you do you use the um, combo inhaler for school as rescue or do you use albuterol or does it vary for patients i've done it both ways <laughs> um in some of the older kids who can self-carry, um, the number that's prescribed is a little less influential. Um, I've done it so that things um, can seem maybe a little easier at school and not change at school. Although I have to say that, that I, I believe <laughs> It should be used in its full extent. <laughs> um, I we have partnered with um, nurse uh, school nurse teams in our area to do some education around this, and I think you know some of the themes of, as we've been talking are how to incorporate this into a community, a hospital system, a neighborhood, caregivers, families. I mean, there's a lot of folks that need to know how to do this. Um, partnering with schools is essential, as we all know, in, in so many ways. And I think this information is important to present from an educational standpoint as unified as we can there too. So we have some initiatives going on there. Um, I, I do have some kids though that will have albuterol if they need it at school, um, before gym. I, I got to admit that. <laughs> and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think it's, we have to work within the system that we're in to provide the best care that we can. If, if I could I mean, we we had to revise our asthma action plans because our EMR, our new EMR upgrade did not include an asthma action plan. I know you're going to talk about this, but I absolutely wanted, you know, controller, a couple of slots for controller blank so that I could put Symbacort in there as as the rescue and the controller, you know, and um, so I, that's what I would prefer is that even though I, I, our needs are not quite as great as yours. But I mean, if, if, if you're going to stick with it, maintenance and reliever, it really needs to be there instead of the albuterol. Actually, that's a perfect uh, segue to Dr. Mansfield. If you want to, uh, if we can just ask the next question about um, asthma action plans. I know Dr. Larkin also mentioned this as well as having to really adapt it. Um, do you guys currently give action plans to smart patients that you put on? Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. It's like the, the one piece of like educational information we send home with them. You know, we've got to spell out what these inhalers are. And the fact that the controller and reliever is the same thing is like one less step to explain to parents. And, um, and unfortunately, we just had this upgrade. We were using the Maine Asthma Council Asthma Action Plan. Um, it didn't incorporate that in there. So now we are we had to now we're having to handwrite them out. 
and give a copy to the parents, the teachers, or the, excuse me, the school nurse, and one to scanning, one that we can put in a drawer so that we can then um, do some quality measures about whether we're giving out asthma action plans. So, um, yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of been a little bit of a crisis. And it is the one, you know, if you sit down and talk to them and write these, you know, their medicines in and it's an educational opportunity for them and then they know what the school nurse you know they know what they're giving the school nurse and so absolutely we use them dr larkin your thoughts yeah we we also very much use them and are a work in progress in adapting what they look like in our emr <laughs> um this has been um, time consuming to redo these uh, in our EMR. Um, we have two systems um, that I think are eventually going to be merging. Um, and our, our, many of our, our primary care groups have a system that they have just changed and we are in the process of creating exactly what we were just discussing with drop down choices um, for for our asthma action plans. So our asthma action plans are being changed as we speak right now. In the in between, for me, I write it out and it gets put on our depart. But definitely in use, um, very much um, um, utilized in the in the clinical setting and. Uh, almost done with switching the EMR so that we can make these drop downs. Dr. Cohen. Yeah, we we do have a smart asthma action plan. We had a traditional asthma action plan in which the yellow and red zones were already finished and all you had to do was fill in the green zone. Um, and so we asked our IT optimization team if they would just adapt this already existing plan um, and change the yellow and red zones to drop down menu, drop down options with Simbacort and Dulera, and four hours or six hours, and eight puffs a day or twelve puffs a day. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that there is some controversy and discussion about what should be in the red zone. I try to keep things again as simple and streamlined as possible. So my red zone is also. Simbacord or Dulera, you know, two puffs of Simbacord or two puffs of Dulera, and if you're in distress, you need to be seen. Um, I don't introduce the, I, I find, at least for the population I take care of, that introducing albuterol into the red zone would not, because like, what's really the difference between the yellow zone and the red zone? Like, the same thing as like step two and step three, like it's all so murky. And so, you know, if you're taking your two puffs of your rescue combination inhaler and it's not working, you need to be seen. And again, piling on more beta-2 agonists is not going to solve the problem. Um, so, I, so yes, I use a smart therapy action, asthma action plan. And I created dot phrases that can go in the assessment and plan for the chart. And we tried to do everything we, we could from a technology standpoint to make this as implementable broadly as possible for people. That's all really helpful information. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and just see, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about the barriers and the difficulties with smart therapy, but I'm curious to hear um, in your experiences, how have families felt about smart therapy after you started them, um, as started patients on it? And have you seen any improvements in exacerbations or other outcomes after starting th smart therapy? Uh, Dr. Mansfield, do you want to start? Oh, I think it's amazing. You know, my kids, it's, it's amazing. I don't see them for oral steroids. You know, I'm. it's just such a win. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Dr. Larkin, have you had similar experiences? Generally, generally things have been successful. Um, there's a lot of dose wiggle room in this. I don't know if folks have had that experience as well. Maybe we can touch on that too. Uh, so, you know, if it's not okay, usually I can 
step up and and get it to a better spot. Uh, and then, as we've discussed, obviously come down when needed. So I I think generally um, I, I've had I've had success with it. I would say. Awesome. And then Dr. Cohen. I would say the balance absolutely tips towards success. I can think of a handful of families who who didn't like using the Symbacord or Dulera as the rescue. Um, and we went back, but I, but it's only a handful. Um, early on, I heard from families that even exacerbations that didn't require emergency room visits or oral steroids, that sometimes the lingering cough would go on for a week or two, and that seems to be substantial, substantially shorter. You know, well, now it's better after two or three days. This used to go on for a week and a half. Um, and people really do like the simplicity. So, again, there's always some a handful of people who, but the overwhelming response has been positive. Great to hear, guys. We just wanted to end by asking you guys, what advice would you give to any of the listeners to this podcast or just... Um, any advice that you glean um, in your practice implementing um, SMART? I know Dr. Larkin even mentioned too, just um, uh, kind of dosing um, or any like nuances that you guys have encountered that maybe um, or that you guys think uh, would be really helpful for, for everyone to really know. Um, Dr. Larkin, do you want to um, start us off? I think that... Um... Smart sets are helpful. Uh, you don't have to calculate like in real time in a visit. Um, once once you have a couple of those, um, I think that asking questions and discussing and having group discussions and partnerships with those around you locally, regionally, nationally is really important. I think we all need to learn from each other here. This was a really nice opportunity for me to learn a lot today. I wish I could do this once a month with folks using this and have like a Q&A in real time. How are you using it? What's working? What's not? Um, I think a follow-up podcast would be so great with like tips and tricks. <laughs> um, I think sometimes doing new things, and it's so funny because when I teach this to residents and to fellows, this isn't new for them, right? This is like what the guidelines say, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's new for us who've been mm -hmm. practicing for so long. Mm -hmm. So I think having an open mind, remembering why these are there, like steroid reduction, better control. I mean, these are really important things as we all embark together on, on utilizing. So I I would encourage folks to talk to each other. I really look forward to seeing the literature that comes out with experience and use and outcomes. Um, and I'm always glad to have an opportunity to share thoughts and ideas with folks on this topic. It's dynamic in my opinion. That's a really great uh, thought about a follow-up uh, kind of topic in, in town hall too. Uh, Dr. Mansfield, um, your final thought? Well, you know, I'm, I have to tell you that I found the AAP's guideline on pediatric asthma, a clinical support chart, so helpful. There's the NIH, there's the GINA, you know, all of this. I just found this so helpful to read, being kind of an older provider and trying to move on to a new method. And I totally agree with you about kind of reaching out to the allergists in my area, the pulmonologists, and my colleagues. Because if I decide to do a Symbacort for exercise-induced asthma, and a, you know, one of my colleagues comes along and says, what is she doing? So um, it, is very, it is really important to communicate what we're doing and why we're doing it um, or what we think about it. So be, because, as you said, you show up in the emergency room and somebody says, what? What are you doing with this inhaler? Um, and um, it is super important for all of us to be on board. And then, Dr. Cohen, your final thoughts? Uh, 
So I agree with everything that Dr. Larkin and Dr. Mansfield said. Um, the community engagement is really important. And I, I did a webinar with the Boston Public School nurses about a year and a half ago um, that I think there were light bulbs going off all around, you know, definitely me included because they're on the front lines dealing with coughing, wheezing children every day um, without a lot of backup. So, so, so taking the time to really engage the community members who are really on the front lines of this, I think is really important. Um, a few quick tips and tricks. Um, I think the documentation about this in the chart is really helpful because it's not only going to be us, the providers answering the questions, it's going to be nurses that are fielding phone calls and about this from lots of places. So making sure that you've canceled out butyrol prescriptions, that you are clear in the SIG, like our um, our prescription defaults for Simbacort and Dulera are two puffs BID. And so you can't just sort of mindlessly click on that and expect for smart therapy to be executed. You have to be in the mindset of making sure that the SIG and the number of inhalers that you prescribe is correct and that albuterol is gone from the med list so that other people answering the calls when you're not there from the school nurses and from parents, I think is um, is really important. And um, just like Dr. Larkin said with smart sets, anything to make it easier. So creating quick dot phrases that are easy to access and um, just to make it doable, I think um, is really important. And then empowering families to call us and let us know, they only gave me one. <laughs> you said I was mm -hmm. supposed to get several and mm -hmm. CVS only gave me one, like to call mm -hmm. us so that we can advocate for them and make sure that they get what's covered um, is really important. Also. Well, that is extremely helpful advice. I feel like I'm going to make changes to my clinical practice after hearing from the three of you. Um, so uh, Dr. Wong and I just really want to thank Dr. Cohen, Dr. Mansfield, and Dr. Larkin for their time this morning and for sharing their expertise and experience. So hopefully others will find this helpful in working towards implementing smart therapy or smart therapy um, in conjunction with the, the current clinical practice guidelines.